A couple of quick announcements. It is Valerie's birthday today. Happy birthday, Valerie. And then if you see Kevin Presley downstairs, it's Kevin's birthday also. Oh, there's Kevin in the back. Happy birthday, Kevin. There he is. And it's Danielle Gatos' birthday also. Man, it's birthday day. What's that? It's not your birthday, though, Stephen. Okay. I have a friend of a friend who it's birthday. No. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 65. The other announcement is I've, I've caused my daughter and Lori Duncan to lie. Um, I know, it's my fault. I said I was going to do Isaiah 65 and 66 tonight, and so Laura posted it on Instagram, and Lori posted it on Facebook that we're going to do 65 and 66 tonight, but we're only going to do 65 tonight. So They're not used to lying like that, and so I'm sure, but... Uh, it's a long chapter, and as I got through it, I'm going, and there's no way. So, but it's good. It's all good. All right. Anybody need a Bible? Stephen's still standing here waiting to give someone a Bible. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the sweet time of worship, just uh, lifting our hands and hearts to you this evening in praise and adoration for all that you've done for us, Lord, and you can continue to do for us in our lives. Lord, it's so evident of your love towards us, and we're just such a blessed people, and we thank you for that. We thank you for this time tonight, Lord God. We pray that you'd bless, bless our time together, Lord, as we look to your word, especially here in chapter 65 of Isaiah. Give us understanding, Lord, uh, uh, just how things lay out, Lord, and your purpose and plan behind it and, and help us to apply some of these truths in our lives, Lord. We, we thank you, Lord, for just the, the joy that it is to come together and to be in your word and, and to know that your spirit is here teaching us and instructing us in your ways and your will. So we ask that you bless our time together. We commit it to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we left off with Isaiah, who'd been praying, and the people had been pleading for God to come down and act on their behalf. Now, it wasn't that God wasn't willing, you know, but Israel had turned her back on God over and over again, so that the only way for God to break through was to allow them to be brought into captivity, you know, and face the consequences of their actions. Not that God was done with Israel, as we've been looking at, but there was a lesson for them to learn. Yes, God will preserve a remnant through which he will fulfill all of his promises, all of his prophecies and his purposes, and Israel will be saved, but it will take a different group of people that God will use to lead them back to himself. And that's what we have before us here in Isaiah chapter 65, as the Lord answers the prayer of Isaiah and the people. Look now at verse 1. The Lord says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me, I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts. Now, the big question here, who is the Lord speaking about? Some feel that it's Israel, 
and the Jews, but I don't think that's correct. The reason I say that is because the last part of verse 1 there, the Lord says, uh, you know, he's speaking about to a nation that was not called by my name. But you see, the Jews were called by God. They were birthed by God to be a people to represent him to the world. So it can't be speaking of the Jews there in verse 1. Clearly, the Lord is speaking about the Gentiles. And Isaiah is recording the prophecy how the Gentiles, the non-Jews, will come to faith in God and be used by God to bring Israel back into that relationship with God. See, in verse 1, the Lord is speaking about the Gentiles. Yet in verse 2, he's speaking about the Jews. Verse 2 says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Now, what's interesting is the Apostle Paul picks up on this and confirms this very thing over in Romans chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, quoting Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 20 and 21. Paul writes, But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul makes the, 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 the split. He makes the, the, the difference there. It's two different groups of people. In verse 20, he's speaking of the Gentiles as he quotes Isaiah 65.1. Then he, as he moves on uh, to quote Isaiah, he tells us specifically that now he's speaking of Israel, the Jews, in verse 21 of Romans chapter 10, as he, as he quotes verse 2 of Isaiah 65. So I think it's pretty clear that if there's any confusion, and Paul really clears that up for us, the Gentiles who are not seeking God will turn to him while his own people will continue just to turn away from him. Now, as I said already, God is going to use the Christian Gentiles as instruments to speak forth this truth, but God is not done with the Jews. There will come a time, as we will see tonight, that the Jews will turn to Christ as a nation and receive the forgiveness of sins that's only found in Jesus Christ. So again, verse 1 speaks of the Gentile Christians. Then verse 2 all the way to verse 7, God is clearly speaking of, of his people, the Jews. Now, as you read these verses, you, you clearly see the love that God has for the Jewish people, even though they're not loving him back. They're not responding to his love. Look again, starting in verse 2, we'll read all the way down to verse 7. I've stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work in their bosom. As I said already, God is speaking to the Jewish people. And, and as you read this, you can clearly see that God loves them, even though they did not love him back. He, he's stretching out his hands towards them, he says in verse 1, or verse 2 rather. Uh, and it says, to, to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. So that they're walking according to their own thoughts. Listen, when man is left to following his own thoughts, it's not a good idea. Solomon put it this way in Proverbs fourteen twelve: There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. 
And actually this goes all the way back to Genesis 6, 5, where it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That man's thoughts are just there for evil. Judges 17, 6. It says there, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And here in Isaiah 65, they walked in the way that is not good according to their own thoughts. See, we're living in a society and a culture today where people, they're walking according to their own thoughts, certainly not according to God or His Word. You know, it's a day of moral relativism. Every man is doing what they think is right in their own eyes according to their own thoughts. And look at the consequences we see in our society. We can't build prisons fast enough to accommodate all those who are being sentenced for their crimes. Abortions are, are killing off the next generation. It's becoming rare, a rare thing for children to be raised in a home with both of their parents, and yet more and more accepting to be raised in a home with two moms or two dads. And you have to wonder just how long God is going to allow these things to continue before He steps in and He brings judgment to America. I mean, when we leave the standards of what we think is right, what we think is wrong to our own hearts, what do we expect is going to happen? The Bible says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who then sets the standards by which you live? Is it of the world? Worldly philosophies taught by men of the world? Then we're in a heap of trouble. Maybe so. Well, it's not the world. I set my own standards. Really? Perhaps a greater concern is, is, is who is setting the standards by which your children are living. Are you doing what's right in, in, in your own eyes? Are you seeking to do what's right in God's eyes? Are you walking in God's ways? Are you, according to Isaiah, you're walking according to your own thoughts? Now, there are people who say, well, hey, what right do you have to tell me what is right and what is wrong? I'm not telling you what is right and what is wrong. I'm just telling you what God says is what is right and what is wrong. We're told what is right. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, the Lord says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord does require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I'm not trying to tell you how you should. I'm trying to tell you how God says you should live, and it's not according to my thoughts, not according to my ideas, but it's according to God's word. Think of John 17, 17, when Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's the word of God that, that changes us. Psalm 119, verse 104 and 105, and the New Living Translation says this, Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Not my thoughts is a lamp to my feet. My ideas are a light to my feet. No, God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. So God says here in verse 2 of Israel, they've been walking according to their own thoughts. Now, not every individual, but the nation as a whole. We know there were godly men at this time who loved the Lord and walked in His ways. you got Jeremiah, and you got you know, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the prophets of God who loved the Lord. But that nation as a whole, they did what they wanted to do, and then they even boasted in their sin. God, God had warned them. He said prophet after prophet, and yet they refused to listen. And in a sense, they're slapping God in the face with their actions. We read here that they began to, to worship false gods in the open for all to see. They weren't hiding in, the, in what they were doing, but they were, they were proud of their actions. Look at verse 3. It says, They were a people who provoked me to anger, continued to my face, who sacrificed in gardens, burned incense on altars of brick. Verse 4, Who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels. Listen, sooner or later, if you reject God's leading and guiding and turn, to, and turn to sin and not repent, there will be consequences. 
And here God is telling them that they've told them to stay away from these pagan altars. He told them not to try and contact the dead. He told them not to eat certain foods. Yet what were they doing? Eating swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels. That's exactly opposite of what God told them not to do. They ate food that was unclean. You know, pork sandwiches, pork chops, bacon, ham. Man, bring on the bacon, you know. But not only was that forbidden, but but they also were taking the pork the swine's flesh here, and, and even offering as a sacrifice to the false gods. I mean, talk about total blasphemy. And then look how prideful they were about it. In verse 5, they're saying to everyone else around them who is telling them how wrong it is, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. Oh, wow. I'm holier than you. I mean, talk about pride. They're not only in rebellion against God, but they were self-righteous in their rebellion. And they left it out there for all to see. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, look what we're doing. Yeah, everybody can look at this. In fact, sin had had blinded their eyes so much that they actually saw themselves as holy. And it would seem that they saw themselves even holier than God. I've said this many times. Sin makes you stupid. So what does God think about it? Verse 5, God says, They're like smoke in my nostrils. A fire that burns all the day. God says, you're like smoke in my nose. I don't know if you've ever had smoke come up your nose. I mean, it's irritating. It's not fun. In other words, God is saying, I've had enough of your hypocrisy. See, he was no more able to tolerate their self-righteousness as he was to endure their idolatry. I like what C.H. Spurgeon said in a sermon on Isaiah 65. I read this today. Concerning self-righteousness. It's kind of old English, but you'll catch what he's saying. He says, moreover, self-righteous men like foxes have many tricks and schemes. They condemn in other people what they consider to be very excusable in themselves. They would cry out against others for a tenth part of the sin which they allow in themselves. Certain constitutional tendencies and necessities of circumstances and various surroundings all serve as ample apologies. Besides this, if it be admitted that they are wrong upon some points, Yet in other directions, they are beyond rebuke. If they drink, well, they do not swear. If they swear, well, they they do not steal. They make a great deal out of negatives. If they steal, they are not greedy and miserly, but spend their gains freely. If they practice fornication, yet they do not commit adultery. If they talk filthily, yet they boast that they do not lie, they would be counted well because they are not universally bad. Self-righteous, self-people, at least I don't do that. And what you're doing this. Spurgeon goes on, he says, They do not break every hedge, and therefore they plead that they are not trespassers, as if a debtor for a hundred pounds should claim to be excused because he does not owe two hundred, or as if a highwayman should say, I did not stop all the travelers on the road, I only robbed one or two, and therefore I shouldn't be punished. If a man should willfully break the windows of your shop, I warrant you, you would not take it as an excuse if he pleaded, I did not break them all, I only smashed one sheet of glass, uh, plate glass. Pleas which would not be mentioned in a human court are thought good enough to offer to God. Oh, the folly of our race. Man, how true that is. We, we negate our sin. We, we make excuses for it. We're, we're blinded to it and we think that, that, that we are holy and maybe even holier than God. For the Jews here, they were doing all the things that the Gentiles were involved in, and yet they saw themselves as holier than the Gentiles. Obviously, they were self-righteous, but in God's eyes, God says they become just as defiled as the Gentiles. 
But the bottom line is this. Man will not get away with his or her sin, and neither would the Jewish people. Sin must be paid for or atoned for, and it's either by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, or you're going to end up paying for your own sins in the lake of fire for eternity. And that's what God is telling his people here, that he will judge them for their actions. His justice will be executed upon their lives. And so well, that's kind of harsh, but God is righteous and holy, and, and by their actions, God is giving them what they deserve. Since they refuse to turn to him so that he could forgive them, his only recourse is to judge them. Now again, this is not everyone, not all the Jewish people. There were, were and are faithful remnants that, that won't be judged as unrighteous uh, as the unrighteous will be. And we'll see this played out in the next few verses. Look at verses 8 through 10. Thus says the Lord, As a new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. See, the Lord now here speaking of the faithful remnant of Jews in verse 9 that will come into a relationship with the Lord and experience the blessings that will follow. Now, there are those who read this text and, and they like to think, that, well, verse 9, when it says, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the elect there, um, let's see where that. Uh, I, from Judah and my mountains, my elect shall inherit it. When they see that word elect there, uh, they think, well, that's the church. They say, well, the church replaced Israel, and in the end, the church will come back into the land. Come on. That's just bad biblical exposition. Verse 9 says, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, from Judah, and heir of my mountains, my elect shall inherit it. Who are the descendants from Jacob? The Jews. But there are those who like to, to twist Scripture and try to prove that God is done with the nation of Israel. He's done with the Jewish people. And they excuse their hatred against the Jews by the fact that God has cut them off and now we as a church is now Israel and so on. But that's again, that's just bad biblical exposition. God is not done with the Jewish people. And we've been looking at this all throughout our study in the book of Isaiah. I mean, all the way back in, in Isaiah chapter 1, we started this back in January. I looked it up this afternoon. January, we started Isaiah. And we're told in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, this. Listen to this. So the daughter of Zion is left at a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. See, what, what Isaiah is speaking there is, in chapter 1 is that God is gracious. And he's merciful. And he is going to have a remnant of faithful people uh, who love him because if there were none, it would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It would all be over. So here in chapter 65, we see the same thought, the same picture that God is separating the good grapes from the bad, those that love him for those who have rebelled against him and refused to repent of their sins. Now, not only does God have his faithful remnant, but the Lord is saying that he will bring back the faithful remnant into the land he won't forget about them. So we get, get the land involved in this as well. He says in the end of verse 9, He'll bring an heir of my mountains, my elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. Now, we see partial fulfillment of that today. May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation. The Jews went back into the land. You know, it, it started right then and there, the, the complete fulfillment. But, but we won't see the complete fulfillment, rather, until the kingdom age when the Lord gathers all the Jews from all over the world back into the land of Israel. 
It's there that the Lord says, look at verse 10. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Acre, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Now, the Lord here is speaking of two locations, Sharon and the valley of Acre. Sharon was to the west of Jerusalem along the Mediterranean seacoast, extending from Joppa to, to Mount Carmel. And the valley of Acre was located southwest of Jericho, east of, the Jerus- of Jerusalem, and named for the place where, where Achan was stoned to death for his disobeying God in the battle of Jericho and taking the spoil, which is be, to be given to God as the first fruits of the land. But, but those, those areas today are, are fertile. And they're beautiful. And yet God is saying here, he's speaking of the day when he'll bring the faithful remnant back into the land. In fact, all of Israel is going to just blossom forth. Now what about those that have forsaken the Lord? What about those who have turned away from God and refused to turn to Him? The Lord is going to speak about that and what they will get in the next few verses. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, But you are those who forsake the Lord, forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish the drink offering to Mini. Therefore I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. It's hard to imagine with all the, the Jewish people what they've seen, and what they've experienced. Uh, that they would turn from the true and living God to worship idols. Here, here the Lord is, is speaking of, of these two gods that were, they, they were worshiping. The first was Gad, not from, from the tribe of Gad, but, the, but, but a Phoenician god meaning fortune or, or good fortune. They also worshiped the god Mini, which is, means destiny. So you know, they're worshiping the, the, the gods and in their lives is destined to have good fortune, or so they thought. But are we not so different today? These are the gods that, that the world tends to worship. We, we strive for, for good fortune and plan out our destiny, never seeking the Lord or His way. Lord, if I just win the lottery, then my, my life will be set. <laughs> well, isn't that I mean, good fortune and destiny? Oh, if this has happened, then, then instead of seeking the Lord. See, it all goes back down to, to, to seeking the Lord in His ways, in His thoughts, not our own thoughts. Well, here was Israel worshiping the God of good fortune and destiny, and yet just the opposite was about to happen to them. God was, judgment was about to fall on them. See, God's grace does not last forever. There will come a point where sin must be dealt with. And God is saying through Isaiah here that they refuse to listen to the word of God. They refuse to listen to the prophets of God. And to simply put it, they refuse to listen to God. And so because they continue to sin, judgment will come. Not might, it will, because God is a righteous judge and much to deal with sin. Why? Well, because he said in verse 12 there, When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that of which I do not delight. Even when I spoke to you, you did those things that were evil in my sight, things that I do not delight in. You know, we see the same thing today, even sadly among Christians. Even though the Lord speaks to us through his word, so often we don't listen and we choose to do our own thing, and God has to deal with us. Get us back to where we, where we need to be and deal with our sin and maybe get us back on track because He loved us. Now, now the, the, the payment for the penalty of our sin was covered by Jesus Christ. He bore our sins upon the cross of Calvary. But as a Christian, you know, if you sin and you refuse to repent and you refuse to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God has placed in your life, God's going to deal with you in other ways. Because God, you know, because He loves you, He doesn't hate you, He loves you, He wants to get you back into that place of fellowship and not in that place of sin. 
I always think, when, when I think about that, I always think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29 through 32. Paul there is dealing with communion. He's dealing with the people's hearts as they're entering the communion. And he says this, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be con- condemned with the world. Definitely what Paul is saying there is, if you're truly born again, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, and you're sin, and you sin, and you do not repent, not take what the Lord has done for you seriously, God can use sickness in your life, even death as a sign of judgment for sin in your life. Sickness in your life to get you to wake up, to stop sinning, and even death if you choose to go on sinning. See, God would rather take you home to be with Him than allow you to continue in sin and rebellion to Him. That's why it's a scary thing to live in unconfessed sin. Now, that's not always the reason we're sick. You know, you know I got a cold. Oh, what sin do you have in your lifetime? That's not always the reason. But, but it's enough of a reason to not want to stay in that place of unrepentance. Therefore, the Lord says to those who refuse to repent, to those Jews who refuse to turn back to the Lord, they will be judged. And then the Lord makes a distinction between the blessings that come from being right with God and the emptiness that comes from being in rebellion against God. A contrast between the faithful and the unfaithful of Israel. Look at verses 13 through 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and well for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Look at all the blessings that that the Lord brings out through Isaiah that come from being a servant of the Lord. My servants shall eat. My servants shall drink. My servants shall rejoice. My servants shall have sing for joy of heart. Now I love Psalm 144 verse 15 tells us happy are the people who are in such state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. See these, these things when the Lord is, is your God. When God is your, your Lord, man, you have peace, you have joy, there's happiness. You're, you're full. God fills your life. But to those who turn their backs on the Lord and chase after other gods, Isaiah says, you're going to be hungry. You're going to be thirsty. You're going to be ashamed. You're going to cry for a sorrow of heart and well for grief of spirit. Your name will be a curse and the Lord God will slay you. Now, I don't know about you, but I like choice number one much better. I mean, that's what the Lord is saying here, that, that we've made the best choice. He says he will, in verse 15, call his servants also by another name. Now, what name would that be? I'm glad you asked. That name is found in Acts 11.26. It says there in Acts 11.26 that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I love that. Here, here's a, a prophecy of, of Christians coming about. Now, the name Christian simply means little Christ. In calling them little Christ, people were actually putting down the believers at the time. They were, they were mocking them. Oh, you're, you're Christian. You're little Christ. But man, it, it's a name now that, that we should wear with great humility and great responsibility. God help us to, to behave like Jesus. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, man, God help us to behave like Jesus did. To show the love and the grace 
and that, that he did and humility that he did. You know, the, the, the holiness that he did. Because here the, the Lord is saying that you, as my people, you're going to be hungry and thirsty and ashamed, but to his new servants will be called by a different name, Christian believers, children of the Lord. Then when you think about, about you know, being thirsty and hungry, what did Jesus say in John seven thirty seven? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What did Jesus say about being hungry? John six thirty five. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So I believe it's the time of the Gentiles that the Lord is speaking about here through Isaiah. The Gentile uh, becoming uh, the people of God. And let me say, God is still working uh, through among the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled, which I believe we are almost there, and then God will once again deal with the nation of Israel. Now, if you're a part of the kingdom of God, then you, if you're not a part of the kingdom of God rather tonight, then you better hurry because the times of the Gentiles is almost over. But now, going on from verse 17 on to the end of the chapter, Isaiah records for us the future when Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem and righteousness will fill this land, the kingdom age and beyond. And I, and I say that beyond because we also see woven into this section of scripture a new heavens and new earth as Revelation talks about. But just as we've been studying in the past how, how you, you know, Isaiah speaks of the two comings of Christ, remember back in, in Isaiah 61, and, and they're woven together many times throughout the book of Isaiah and Scripture, so too this next section gets a little tricky, but I think we can separate the two as we look at the New Testament to shed some light on it. Look now at verse 17. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. See, I believe verse 17 here, we're jumping ahead past the great tribulation period, past the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, to the Lord, when the Lord will then create a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, what is interesting here is the Hebrew word that is used for create. It's not speaking of the reassembling of existing material. Uh, this, the word I, Isaiah uses, borrow, to create something out of nothing. Same uh, word that is used in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Mind me, this, it reminds me about the story about a scientist who once approached God and said, listen God, we've decided we don't need you anymore. These days we can clone people, transplant organs, and do all sorts of things that used to be considered miraculous. God replied, don't need me, huh? How about we put your theory to the test? Why don't we have a competition to see who can make a human being, say, a male human being? The scientists agree, so God declares they should do it like he did in the good old days when he created Adam. Fine, says the scientist, as he bends down to scoop up a handful of dirt. Whoa, says God, shaking his head in disapproval. Not so fast, you get your own dirt. It's only God who can create something out of nothing. And so here in verse 17, the Lord says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now this is not speaking of during the kingdom age, the millennial reign of Christ, rather again after the thousand years. This is the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. This is the eternal state where, where the curse will be done away with, death abolished, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. The past things will not come back to remembrance. That, of course, is not true in the kingdom age, but, but in the eternal state. 
Remember what Peter said, and we'll get to it on Sunday mornings eventually, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Peter says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's not going to take place before the millennial. That will take place after the millennial kingdom when, when everything will be destroyed. God will create something completely new, the eternal state, and he will create that from nothing. In fact, Peter goes on in verse 11 of Second Peter 2, and, uh, of Second Peter, where he says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, since this whole material world is going to be destroyed, then what kind of person you ought to be? Well, if I'm a material person, I'm going to be wiped out. It's going to have an effect on me. But if I'm into the things of God, in the spiritual things, then I will lay up treasures in heaven where thieves uh, can't break through and steal. And I should be a spiritual man or woman and mindful of spiritual things because the physical material universe is going to be destroyed. Now, I like what else the Lord says here. He says, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So when we get into that final age, past the millennial reign of Christ, new heaven and new earth, we won't be saying, oh, you remember that time we went down to Silver Dollar City? We're not going to remember that stuff anymore. It's not even going to be coming to our minds. Now, some people, they're worried, well, I can never really enjoy heaven if my parents aren't there or my children aren't there or something. Here the Lord's saying, you'll have no memory of those things. Now, why does he say that? Because this time on which we're living in right now will be considered the most horrible time in history because man rebelled against God. We're not going to want to look back at man's rebellion against God. All the sorrow, all the pain that has come along with that will be forgotten forever. I don't know about you, but, but I, I would love to forget some of the worst times in my life. You know, the times that, that, that when I failed my Lord or just times where there was sorrow and, and, and pain because of death. God says, I'm going to wipe away all those tears, all those sorrows. It's not going to come back to your mind again. Now, during the millennial reign, that is something different. We jump back into that in verse 18. Look at verse 18 now. Lord says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So during the kingdom age, during that thousand year reign of Christ, there will be children born, raised during that time. That's why there's a big difference between verse 17 and the rest of the chapter. During the kingdom age, the earth will be populated Children will, will be born. They'll live a very, very long life. Now, this also implies that during the kingdom age, there'll, there'll still be death, but, but it'll be rare. The Lord says, at 100 years old, you'll still be considered a child. Oh, yeah, I'm just a kid, 100 years old, you know. So most people, they'll live through the thousand years and not die. We also know that, that during those thousand years, Satan will be chained, unable to tempt the world to sin. Until the end, when Satan will be released and people will have a choice to make that, make that and choose to follow the Lord or Satan, and then the Lord will deal with this rebellion, which is short-lived. After that is a great white throne judgment, and then finally the new heavens and the new earth. And I say, well, what about us? What about us as Christians? What about all of us that were raptured out of here just before the Great Tribulation period? 
Well, we will be with the Lord. We'll have glorified bodies. We'll be ruling and reigning with Jesus. Revelation chapter 5 verse 10 says, And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. I love that. Now, during that time of the thousand years, look at verse 21. God tells us that the people, verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf of the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy. And all my holy mountain says the Lord. Now again, we have the, the, the Jewish people coming back into the land. And they'll have the relationship with the Lord as well there. The, the people will finally be there. And, and this is all taking place during the millennial reign of Christ. And there are those that, that, that like to say, well, you know, we're living now in the millennial reign of Christ. We're living now in that thousand years. Listen, if we are and Satan's bound, then he's got a really long chain, okay? And if we are, go ahead and try to put a wolf and a lamb next to each other. That wolf is going to enjoy some lamb chops, let me tell you. And I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I've not seen a lion eating any straw. See, we're not there yet. Because there's going to be this huge biological, ecological, spiritual transformation that takes place as all of creation is going to be living in harmony with each other. It'll be a time of spiritual transformation because the presence of God and His knowledge will cover the earth. Everything humming together in a glorious harmony with God. What a disastrous effect sin has put on man and on this earth and, and, and thrown us out of harmony with God and thrown us out of harmony with nature around us. I mean, the ferociousness of a lion, the wolf, and, and these things, out of harmony with God, they're, they're suffering all because why? A result of man's sin. Everything's out of balance. What a day when, when, when the Lord returns and He brings everything back into harmony. I can't wait. All right, we're stopping there tonight because Isaiah 66 is, is just as long as 65. And, and so uh, with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your word. Lord, because this isn't meant, we understand, to, to scare us. Isn't, it's not doom and gloom, Lord, for us as believers. It's exciting. It's our hope, eternity with you, Lord God. Because we placed our faith and trust in you, we have the forgiveness of our sin. Lord, we, we've been chosen by you. We've been elected. We've been saved to be a part of your kingdom and your righteousness. And so we long for that day when sin is no more. Father, help us now as, as we live on this earth, Lord, not to trust in our own thoughts and our own ways, Lord, but to trust in you and your word. Help us not to swerve to the left or to the right, but stay strong in your word, Lord. Help us to be followers of your word in truth, Lord, uh, to, to live, to be good ambassadors of our name as Christians, Lord, Christ-like. And Lord, and when we do blow it, and when we do fail, Lord, help us to confess that sin right away so that we're not uh, forced to, to, to be taken to the woodshed, so to speak, Lord God. Help us to see where we've fallen and turn quickly back to you. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness you offer, 
for the grace you've given to us, the mercies you've bestowed upon us. We praise you for this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one.